On today's episode, whether you like it or not, we live in a world where many of our choices about where to stay, where to go, what to buy, what to eat, where to sleep, are guided at least somewhat by online reviews, or at least reviews written by people with no particular qualifications other than the energy it takes to do this. Those people may have a lot to say about some kind of purchase you make. So where do those reviews come from? How valid are they? How easily gameable is this system by outside actors? And how hilarious are online reviews when there's not a whole lot riding on them for you? All of those things will be discussed after the news. So that's about a different kind of review than what we're talking about today. That's from Sunday in the Park with George, in case you don't recognize it. We're going to today be talking about online reviews. Online reviews that are written by people with no ostensible expertise, right? I mean, you're going to buy a toaster on Amazon. The reviews for that toaster are not going to be from people who are toaster experts, although they might try to claim that. We'll get to that in a second, too. Um and But we rely on these things quite frequently. So what are they? Where do they come from? What should we know about them? Uh, all of that will be dealt with. And then what do they do to the people who are written about? I mean, particularly in somewhat close, kind of narrow margin industries like, say, the restaurant business. Well, you'll hear from somebody in the restaurant business about what a bad review can mean. Uh, and particularly if it's just sort of tossed off without very much thought, well, it can have fairly big consequences for the restaurant. We'll also talk about how to spot fake reviews. There are a lot of fake reviews, people getting paid to write reviews for products they don't really like or use. And then towards the end, we're going to hear from a genuinely amusing podcast uh, called Beach Too Sandy, Water Too Wet, uh, in which they do kind of dramatic readings of crazy online reviews. And they're going to read two of the reviews. I, I don't know if you know this, but on Apple Podcasts, there's sort of a review function. People can leave reviews. So, um, I mean, there are reviews of, of this particular radio show as a podcast. I'm also there are Amazon reviews of my books, which are often very strange. And I do want to say before I go a step further, before I introduce our first guest. So, you know, Samuel Johnson famously said, none but a blockhead wrote except, and I'm doing it wrong, none but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. And that's been, as a freelance writer, very much my philosophy. I don't I don't write for no money, <laughs> except I've done 46 TripAdvisor reviews. And if I stay at an Airbnb, I'm probably going to review it. And the reason for that, I think, is because I'm participating in a system that I benefit from, right? I mean, I use TripAdvisor reviews sparingly, you know, to help plan a trip. So I should be contributing, particularly because I feel like I often know a little bit more about, say, food than some of the people who are reviewing restaurants on TripAdvisor. All right. Enough about me. Let's get going here. Uh, we're going to start out with Camila Vasquez, a professor of applied linguistics at the University of South Florida and the author of The Discourse of Online Consumer Reviews, which, oddly enough, at least as an ebook, does not have any consumer reviews on Amazon. I looked it up. Uh, but very exciting to talk to you, Camila Vasquez. And maybe we should begin by saying it was, in fact, TripAdvisor that at least partly got you started down this road of trying to, to analyze the way language is used in online reviews. So tell us about that. Sure. Thanks, Colin. Um, so yeah, I became really interested in TripAdvisor reviews around 2007, 2008, and kind of as you already indicated. So there's some, you know, function of utility, right? You get a sense of firsthand experience from somebody who's just been at the hotel that you're planning on visiting, and that's useful information. 
supposedly it's unbiased information. If it's just a regular consumer like me or you, of course, it's difficult to know. And we'll probably talk about that a little later. Uh, but at, at the time, TripAdvisor's interface looked a little different than it looks now. Now it's all kind of slick and corporate looking. But back in the day, it had a more grassrootsy feel. And so they had a, a feature that was called Rants and Raves, where they would showcase the very best of the best hotel reviews and the very worst of the worst reviews. And for some reason, I was drawn to reading these really bad rants of like hotel experiences gone terribly wrong. So that kind of got me thinking about the dual nature of re reviews. They're on the one hand, they're useful, but on the other hand, they can also be kind of entertaining. Um, and I think some sites have tapped into that. Oh, absolutely. And and that there are other versions of that. I mean, Amazon kind of does the same thing in the sense that they show you the most help, the supposedly most helpful positive review and the most helpful negative review. Um, so one of the things that somebody has to do, theoretically anyway, in some cases, actually, before I ask that question, let me just back up and say, so now you've looked at this phenomenon across a bunch of different websites or platforms or whatever we want to call them. And, and I, you know, I mean, anybody who's looked at Yelp knows that it's written differently than, uh -huh. than TripAdvisor and that TripAdvisor is written differently from an Amazon review, but we're not all linguists. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so some of it, the, you're exactly right. So um, it kind of depends on the nature of the the product, whether it's an experience good or, you know, something that is very subjective, like a novel or a movie or something like that, versus a search good, like a toaster, or a blender, something that, you know, has pretty kind of consistent specifications that most users will experience the same way or a service. So, um, you know, service experiences have many dimensions. If you go to a restaurant, there's not just the food, but there's the interaction with the wait staff. There's the how long you have to wait to be seated. There's the parking and all of that, right? So there's going to be different dimensions that will be addressed in the reviews. Um, but you mentioned the difference specifically between Yelp and, for instance, TripAdvisor. So I haven't actually been on Yelp probably in a few months, so I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was doing my research, um, initially they had readers could could rate actual Yelp reviews and they could rate them on three dimensions, whether they were useful, funny, or cool, right? So if funny becomes a parameter by which reviewer, reviews are going to be rated by readers, then of course, um, review writers will try to do things to make themselves appear funny and cool. So there's a different kind of ethos on Yelp. Right. And that if you're a restaurant owner, you, well, we're about to meet one in just a second, you're, you're worried about the person who now feels as though he or she will be rewarded for being funny. And probably the main way you're going to be funny is to make fun of your restaurant experience or whatever it is that you're writing about. Right. There's suddenly becomes an, probably a little bit of an incentive to be amusingly disparaging. Sure. Snarky reviews, I imagine, are probably more um, appear more on Yelp than they would on TripAdvisor, for instance. Mm -hmm. But also just in terms of language used, I feel as though, and I, I'm, once again, I'm not a student of all this. I don't know, the people writing on Yelp, particularly the people writing about restaurants, they always kind of sound a little drunk. And I don't get the feeling that they really have chosen <laughs> their language all that carefully. Um, there's n often not much to suggest that they have any valid expertise about this. Where in Amazon, on Amazon, it feels like sometimes people want to tell you that, you know, I don't know, that they often cook this particular thing. You know, they make cassoulet every week, so they would know what they're talking about with this Rachel Ray product. You know, and, and the people on TripAdvisor, I think at least sometimes, are trying to convey maybe a little bit, I don't know, I should ask you, what are the kind of the stylistic differences? Sure. So Yelp, as we were, as you were just saying, tends to be more casual. So we see a lot more like um, informal markers, interjections, or expletives, or things like that. Um, the other two um, that you mentioned, Amazon and TripAdvisor, I think we see people trying to do more writerly things, try to you know come across as um, having an educated, informed opinion. Uh, but it's interesting that you say this thing about um, how reviewers claim expertise, like what they know or what they don't know. And we actually find reviewers doing both of those things. Sometimes they they say, OK, this is, you know, I'm no expert on this, but in my experience, you know, this product isn't working. Um, and actually, I have done um, some research on, on Yelp reviews of Michelin starred restaurants in uh, New York, New York City market. And so in those more expensive kinds of restaurant reviews, you do see people actually claiming certain kinds of expertise and identity. Like I'm, I'm no uh, newcomer to the Michelin scene. I've eaten and then they'll give you like a resume of all the Michelin star restaurants in that city that they've eaten. And so 
and of course, reviewers do this in different ways, depending on the platform and depending on what they're reviewing, but definitely claiming some, you know, giving you some idea of whether they are experienced or not so experienced is something that I found quite frequent in reviews. Right. I love the people on Amazon who who hack the product immediately after they buy it. Uh, you know, they'll say, I bought this smart refrigerator and I opened it up and I wiped out its memory and I did this and I did that. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> you bought a new refrigerator and now you're messing around with it before anything's broken, but there are all kinds of different mentalities, I, I guess. So what is the incentive to do this? I mean, this isn't really exactly a linguistic question, but uh, linguistics allow us to maybe sort of begin to look at motivations. I mean, you know, writing something is you know, work. <laughs> Why would people do it? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And as you say, it's it's probably one um, more tailored for a psychologist, but I can speculate based on some of the psychology research that I've read on about online reviews. And so there is, as you mentioned earlier, there's kind of a, um, for some people, there's a sense of altruism. You're doing this for the community. And as somebody who benefits from reading reviews yourself on TripAdvisor, you may feel compelled to leave a review. Um, sometimes there are people, uh, I remember report about specifically Amazon and book reviews. Book reviews were the first kinds of reviews that were posted on Amazon before they branched into selling us all kinds of other products. And so people, some reviewers indicated that they liked reading, uh, leaving reviews because that kind of gave them a record of the books that they had read. So it was kind of like a, almost a diary device or a record, uh, um, a recording of their own experience with, with different books. So there may be different kinds of reasons, obviously. And then, you know, you kind of touched on the fraudulent reasons, right? There's the nefarious side of reviews as well, where sometimes people actually are being paid to write uh, reviews, either very strongly positive or very strongly negative ones, typically. Right. So, I, by the way, I think TripAdvisor kind of works the way that you were talking about books, too, for me anyway. I hadn't looked at my TripAdvisor reviews in a long time, and I haven't been anywhere in a long time, so I'd had no incentive to write new ones. But, you know, just looking at it and thinking, oh, yeah, I was in the Dordogne region of France that time, and oh, yeah, that's the name of that restaurant or something. It was kind of fun just looking at mm -hmm. a whole bunch of years of, you know, I, I don't know what year I went to, you know, Belfast or whatever. So, it, it's, so you, you talked about nefarious. And not that this is going to be only about that, but this might be a good time to bring in somebody who is on the receiving end of reviews. Chef Tyler Anderson is the owner of Tanda Hospitality, which includes the restaurant Millwright's Tavern, uh, Millwright's in Simsbury, a catering company and more. He's also a contestant on season 15 of Top Chef, as well as on the episode on episodes of Chopped in the, and Beat Bobby Flay. Um, so... I'm guessing he doesn't get very many negative reviews because his restaurants have great reputations. But on the other hand, you got to deal with this stuff. So, Tyler Anderson, welcome to our show. Hi, how are you? I, I am just fine. I would give myself four stars uh, in terms of how I feel right now. Um, so, um, so maybe just talk a little bit about this. Uh, you've been a chef for a while. I, I don't know if your memory stretches back to a time when you didn't have to think about what would happen on social media rating platforms like Yelp. But, I mean, to what degree has this kind of tinctured or somehow or other colored the nature of your work? I mean, at this point, it's a necessary evil. You know, it's it's going to happen, so we deal with it. I don't think there's a restaurant owner alive who wouldn't shut down Yelp in a second if they were given the opportunity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, you know, if it's, if you can't beat them, join them. So we 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 cater to it a little bit, you know, um, in some ways, and you know, we use it as a tool. It's a it, it is a good way to see trends in your restaurant, both positive and negative. Um, and that's about all it's good for, in my opinion. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, Camilla, one point that Tyler's making too, I think, and it's a point worth making, I know this is true of political advertising, that negative political advertising stays in the mind and is considered to be more, more effective than positive political advertising. I'm assuming linguistically that there's something detectable about that on at least some of these platforms, that the negative review, the one-star review has, there's maybe, the language is going to be more visceral, maybe more memorable. Well, I think it's just the the negative experience overall, right? So you can get a new haircut and 99 people tell you that they love your new haircut and one person tells you that they don't <laughs> love your new haircut and you're going to feel terrible about yourself, right? So I think it's those things. And, um, you know, I, I empathize with business owners because as Tyler said, it's a it's it's something that no business today can opt out of. 
right? So whether you want to be there or not, you are there and people are posting all kinds of things about you, whether they're true or not. And you can't do anything about that. The only thing you can do as a business owner is figure out how you're going to respond if you want to respond. So Tyler, it also must be weird, you know, to see one of these reviews and not, and it says I was at Millwrights or wherever and I had this horrible experience and then they describe it. And it's just not something that's anywhere on your radar. In other words, the customer didn't in the moment say, I'm having a horrible experience. What can you do about it? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we haven't. There are some reviews. We're certainly not perfect, right? We know we know we're not perfect. We're a restaurant. There are so many moving parts. Sometimes, unfortunately, people have issues. Uh, what I always tell people is that restaurant owners always want to know if you have if you have an issue while you're there, because that's where where we can do our best to fix it, and we want to fix it. Uh, our job as restaurant owners is not to have people leaving our restaurants unhappy with their experience. It is to have them leave happy. Uh, and so people, I just feel like we'll get so much more out of uh, letting issues be known there than they would to leave and write a review. And they'll also get a lot more by emailing the restaurant directly, even if they don't want to have confrontation within the restaurant, they'll, they'll have uh, a lot more success. I think they get a lot more out of uh, communicating directly with the restaurant. You know, Tyler, one thing that I notice with hotels um, is that, uh, for example, on TripAdvisor, you'll often see the manager of a hotel respond to some criticism. And it's, you know, sometimes it's just clearly a, a robot. You know, it's just it says the same thing every time. Uh, but but often it is the manager or somebody else in the hotel is saying, I'm really sorry that that happened. And, you know, we've looked at that AC unit. I think we've got it working right now or, or whatever. And my, my understanding is you would do the same thing in some instances, right? Try to respond to the review? Yes. Uh, I, <laughs> I I pick and choose what I respond to because I really only respond to the truly ridiculous ones. <laughs> uh, and, and I like to respond with the same level of ridicu- ridiculousness that the, that the review is written with. Hmm. It does not happen often, but we've had people leave reviews about our restaurant who weren't even at our restaurant. <laughs> We've had we've had people leave reviews about coming to our restaurant and it not being open because they came during an hour that it was not open. Mm. One star. Right. So <laughs> those are the sort of re- reviews that I personally like to reply to. Our management team, we sort of we like to reply to about half of the reviews that we get overall, whether they are good or bad. And we see them all. I mean, it's part of our weekly meetings is that we do talk about uh guest input and the reviews are part of guest input so all right so uh, camilla maybe you could say a little bit about that too that that whole phenomenon of somebody from the the you know relevant business from the affected business um responding to an online review what is there there seems to be some obvious value in that but but comment please Sure. Yeah. One person, um, there's a a marketing book called Hug Your Haters. And uh, the author of that book says that kind of this public engagement with comments online has become a spectator sport. So as Tyler said, there's probably people paying attention like, oh, look at this ridiculous review. And oh, look at, you know, this equally kind of absurd response from the owner, right? So that's kind of, people are paying attention to that. And we know that because they'll say something in the reviews also like, oh, check out how funny, you know, this restaurant owner is in his response to the absurd comments and and things like that. Um, It's it's true that not all restaurants, not all businesses actually seize the opportunity to respond in the the reply space. Um, I I actually did a survey as part of a a project uh, where I interviewed 20 owners of restaurants in my local area. And all of them said that they they do read reviews, but I found that only... um, I think it was like 20% of them actually respond to them, 20 or 30%, something like that. So everyone's kind of aware that the these comments are going online, but how folks deal with it is different. And I imagine a lot of that has to do with um, lack of time and, and lack of resources for smaller businesses. So Tyler, we're probably um, overly emphasizing negative reviews. Your restaurants are really popular and acclaimed. You get good reviews. Um, talk about those. I mean, do those affect how you do things? Will you at that meeting go, wow, three people thought that that sole special we had is really good. Maybe we should think about putting it on the regular menu or I don't know. What, what does a good review do uh, or a series of good reviews do uh, for you and your staff? So like it, like it was mentioned earlier, you know, 99 people can tell you your hair looks great and one person tells you <laughs> it's not. And that's all you remember. I love that because that's exactly how it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, we definitely do hit on, we definitely do like to talk about the good ones, but 
we sort of operate under the assumption that all of them will be good and we're sort of quote unquote surprised when we get bad ones and we do get bad ones. So unfortunately, those are the ones that come to the surface. If if an employee is mentioned by name or coworkers mentioned by name numerous times and things like that, like that's definitely acknowledged and we then we like that. And it is great to get good reviews. It is nice to get good reviews, but we truly only remember the bad ones. Like it'll, it'll like a bad, I've been a restaurant owner for over 10 years now. And I stopped checking reviews on my day off because it will literally ruin my day off. If we get a bad review or part or a section of it still to this day. And I have pretty thick skin. So it's, uh, you know, we, we, unfortunately we do dwell on the bad. Yeah. So, I, you know, Tyler, I'm going to uh, ask you a question, which you're going to probably have to make sure you don't wind up sounding like a snob or something. But but I'll be the snob at the beginning and say oh, I, st- I started writing TripAdvisor reviews partly because I was, you know, I'd be in Rome or somewhere and I'd be reading reviews from people, restaurant reviews from people who just clearly didn't know that much about food, you know, and their their expectations were weird and maybe oddly Midwestern when you know they're they're somewhere <laughs> in Europe or something. And and the whole thing I just thought, well, I mean, I'm not a food expert, but I don't know. Like I think your friend Chris Prosperi would say I know a reasonable amount about food. And I thought, well, I I can perform a service here. I can sort of maybe evaluate this particular restaurant a, with a little bit more familiarity with, you know, maybe even what the regional cuisine is supposed to be around here. I mean, you get served a piece of lamb and, you know, in, in the Dordogne region of France, it's it's going to be almost raw because you know, that's right. the way they do stuff. So uh, maybe can you say a little bit about that? It's going to be frustrating. Everybody's an expert on Yelp. Everybody's a genius on TripAdvisor. Everybody's a toaster expert on Amazon. But you really are an expert about something, and that's going to be a little bit of a, a stress area. You know, it is, uh, and it's it's nice when people who really know what they're talking about leave nice reviews, and it's not nice when pe- people who really know what they're talking about leave bad reviews because you know you know that you kind of truly screwed up. But a big part of the restaurant business is honestly like guest perception is everything. So it doesn't matter if you're you know from. Illinois and you like your steak, however, with ketchup or whatever, if you didn't like your meal at my restaurant, like you didn't like your meal at my restaurant and we failed. Uh, so, you know, we, we, it's, it's not always a room full of experts. Our job is to make everyone happy who comes to the restaurant. And if you're not happy for any reason, then in my opinion, we failed. And so expert or not, we just, we don't like to see the negative reviews, even unless they, unless they get ridiculous. You know, and I can talk about some ridiculous ones, but, uh, you know, I don't like to bring them up. All right. So, um, you know, I mean, Camilla, this all, so for me, and really, I only really do this on TripAdvisor and, and probably Airbnb and stuff like that, because somebody's trip is kind of important to them and for them to rent a house or something that's just really not appropriate or, you know, has a glaring flaw. Well, I, I want to benefit from those kinds of, val- of evaluations. So I think it's only fair that I offer up these evaluations. Could you talk about this? Is this a system that benefits from large numbers? Like, I'm sure there's a power law here where, you know, 10% of the people write 90% of the reviews or something like that. But do you think it would be better if more people participated as reviewers? That's a great question. I think that in any realm of human experience, there are going to be only a small percentage of people who actively you know, participate. Probably the same is true of your social media feed. It's the same people who post things and then, mm-hmm. you know, uh, more and more people just kind of click or scroll or like. So um, it's, it's an interesting question. It's a tricky question. I'm not sure that I have the answer to it. Um, I will tell you, though, that, you know, we've been, we have been focusing a lot about on the negative because, as we've discussed, that tends to stick with us. But on every single reviewing platform, and there's economics research to back this up, there's a trend for a positivity bias. So we might sort of the, the negative ones might stay with us, but there's always going to be more five-star reviews than one-star reviews. So the, the economists describe this as a J-shaped distribution. It kind of bottoms out in the two, three, four range. Because if, if you're not really happy or really upset, then your motivations to write a, view, a reviewer are not going to be as high, right? So um, yeah, I think that overall people are generally positive. So maybe that says something um, that's optimism about humanity. <laughs> well, also, I mean, there's a way in which uh, this is really a complicated thing, but let me just back up and say, in some cases, the, the the system itself is not designed for that kind of middle ground subtlety. And I'll, I'll once again use TripAdvisor as an example. I haven't done it in a while, but the last time I did it, I think five stars was excellent. Four stars was very good. Three stars mm. was average. 
And and so there are times when I don't want to give something a very good rating. I want to give it a good rating. There's no such thing as a good rating. <laughs> you go from very good to average in their star system. And, and I think that tends to push you maybe a little bit more. It's like, all right, so really the minimum okay thing here is four stars. That's what I'll do. I mean, I think we kind of wind up chasing each other within the herd, Camilla. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, and that does speak to some of my research, which looks at linguistic features. So I, one of the things I'm curious about is how do people evaluate things positively or negatively in terms of the language that they use? And what I found is that there is this like overall um, downgrading of positive sentiment. So if I were to ask you, you know, how was your meal at, um, at some restaurant, not Tyler's, somebody else's, <laughs> um, and you, you were to tell me good, I would think, okay, if it's good, then what, what's wrong with it? Why isn't it amazing? Or why isn't it mind-blowing, right? So we tend to use these super hyperbolic adjectives now to talk about, you know, maybe a quite good or excellent experience, but, you know, not everything can be amazing, clearly, but, but that's the language that we're kind of forced to use. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. Tyler, before we go, before we run out of time here, I think it's also worth noting, you know, an awful lot of these reviews will single out maybe a member of the wait staff or something like that, and and sometimes negatively. And it might be worth saying from the point of view as a boss and as somebody who has a workforce, what it does to these people if maybe they're having a bad day or maybe something that's not really their fault. It happens somewhere else along the chain, you know, cause something to be late or wrong or, you know, I mean, it must be kind of hard for them to just read people talking smack about them. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think anybody likes that. The The thing I do like about bad reviews mentioning people by name is that I can get those taken off very easily mm -hmm. uh, because they've mentioned an employee by name. Mm -hmm. So when I see a name, I, I automatically flag it. Uh, and, you know, fortunately I'm surrounded by a lot of good people who love what they do where I work and they do take it very, you know, they, they take it to heart many, many times, especially with service staff. It is not their fault if there's a mistake. Uh, and when they're, and when they're singled out, you know, it, it's it's really just not fair. And, uh, you know, I know life isn't, but it, it's not always it's not always them who were the issue. Certainly. All right. We've got to take a break right now. Thanks so much to Camila Vasquez, professor of applied linguistics at the University of South Florida, the author of the discourse of online consumer reviews. Chef Tyler Anderson is the owner of Tanda Hospitality, including the restaurant Millwrights uh, and has been on all kinds of really famous uh, cooking shows on television. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about something a little bit more specific. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. So... Um probably like a lot of you these days. I don't buy I don't make any significant purchase without checking say Wirecutter. I have a consumer reports subscription. I mean, you use these things because the people who do the writing and do the reviewing in them are people who have developed some kind of obvious expertise. But it's also hard to balance sometimes what you read there with I don't know, the most ir the almost irresistible temptation to read the you know, online reviews on Amazon, which are just a complete mess. But here to help us sort out that mess is Lauren Dragon, a senior staff writer at Wirecutter, the New York Times product recommendation service, which is terrific. Lauren, welcome to our show. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So, you know, you're doing one thing, which is you're testing a whole bunch of headphones or something like that. And <laughs> and you know a lot about headphones and you've used more headphones than probably 99.9% of humanity at this point. But there's also on Amazon a whole bunch of people claiming to know something about headphones and or whatever the product is. Maybe you could just begin by saying, I don't know, as 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 somebody who is an expert and is a reviewer, is a reviewer, when you look at that stuff, what does it look like to you? The online stuff. Well, you know, I think look, every person who takes the time to write something has some reason they're doing it. You know, I mean, one of the things that's really challenging, I think, you know, as you talked about before, is getting people to write reviews when they're meh about something. You know, if you buy a spatula and the spatula works, like you're not really inspired to be like, <laughs> goodness, the way it's scraped on the sides of the bowl, it was so perfect. You know, it's a spatula. So it's really hard to get those kind of, it was acceptable type of things. So for me, I find it interesting to look for patterns. So I go through and I see like, are a lot of people mentioning the same type of issue? Um, are people kind of all really a fan of something specific that maybe I might not have thought of as a feature, but that for a certain demographic of people is really important? So that's kind of how I use them, um, is, is really looking for multiple iterations of things that are not just generic statements of sucked or awesome product, <laughs> we'll buy again with some spelling errors in it, you know? <laughs> You should be doing a podcast. Yeah, you should be doing a podcast that you know, competes with uh, "Water Too Wet, Beach Too Sandy" or whatever it is, because you do a great impersonation of people saying "sucked." Um, all right, so well, we should talk a little bit about intentional dis disinformation. This is something that you've looked at, looked into and written about too. There are things mm -hmm. uh, online that are not really just. Uh, earnest consumers located in anywhere America having bought something and tried it out and either liked it or not liked it. These are people who are mm -hmm. being compensated and maybe are part of a pretty large-scale operation. Tell us more about what is known about that kind of thing at this point. You know, it's interesting because it's um... – <sighs> A lot of companies want to downplay it and Amazon does their best. You know, they're one of the largest ones that have a lot of people reviewing things. And so they do their best to try to keep, uh, you know, the game of whack-a-mole going of trying to, you know, keep an eye on this stuff. But inevitably, things get through. There are people that use uh, programs uh, like Amazon had the Vine program going for a while where they will send people things in exchange for a, or quotes, unbiased review. Um, there are programs where people are just paid to write things. There are programs where, and I mean, I don't know if you've gotten them, but I certainly have just as a person who buys things in my private life. I've gotten emails from companies being like, hey, write a review of this thing and we will give you a, once it's accepted, <laughs> we will give you a coupon for a free thing, 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 you know? And so as a result, it is really hard to parse through. And it's not to say that people can't write what they really feel about something when they're receiving even the product for free. It's just, it changes the way you view stuff because when you go into something and you're getting it for free, something that might be a real big problem for someone who spent $200 might not seem as big of a deal to you for $0, you know? So there's that sliding scale of perception. And unless you're doing that day in and day out where you're constantly kind of mentally checking and going, you know, am I doing this because of my own motivations and biases, which is something that we're trained to do at Wirecutter, is that we're constantly trying to work out our own, you know, perceptual biases. Um, it's hard to do for just somebody who is like, you know, working their day off and, you know, doing some little quick thing to get a free coupon code or something. Yeah. We should say that some of these activities are not without consequences. There have been lawsuits and prosecutions filed in some cases where people were engaging in this or companies were engaging in this in this kind of yep. stuff in a pretty dishonest basis. So don't mm -hmm. don't try this at home. You could you could have the FTC at your door with a search warrant <laughs> or something like that. So um, I, the other thing that I often wonder about is and I think this is especially true on Amazon. I'll give an example. So I was trying to buy a frying pan for my son, and I discovered that there is no frying pan on Amazon, even the one that the ones that have four and a half stars or you know that if you read twenty reviews, you're going to find like one that hates or two that they hate this frying pan so much. Um, <laughs> and and this is the case with a frying pan that I not only bought for him, but I liked it so much I bought it for me. It's a great frying pan. And I don't know, does that arouse your suspicion when something's just really pretty obviously pretty good and, 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 and is being enjoyed by a lot of consumers. And then are there just maybe just people who just sociopathically are predisposed to hate something or, 
<laughs> or is this maybe some company, some rival frying pan company saying, I got to take up Mo out of the game here right now? You know, and look, I I have heard anecdotally, I am not someone who can, I can't say for certain, but I have heard anecdotally about suspicions on companies of other companies trying to work a social media campaign against them. And I mean, it's not a bad idea to try, I suppose, to get away with if you can. But, you know, I don't have any evidence directly of that. That's not my job is to, you know, I'm not an investigative reporter on that specific thing. But um, what I will say, too, is there are just people who have very strong feelings about things um, and, you know, covering headphones, audiophiles. I don't know if you know this, but they are very opinionated. <laughs> I do um, they have they have very strong feelings about things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they get very mad at me. Right. Um, and I've learned that oftentimes what people are looking for are some level of validation that their experience is authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes people do it when they feel left out, when they feel like people are ignoring their particular issue in life. So if it's like, you know, and, and some of it's really valid. Like when you talk about things that are underserved communities, like people that have um, mobility issues or mm-hmm. people that um, are you know, experiencing some sort of hearing loss or things like that, communication issues, those types of things are often really valid problems that come up because the products are not designed with everyone in mind. So there's that. But then there's also the people that just, you know, they just have their days and they want to feel like someone's hearing them and feel validated. And, uh, you know, you got to kind of read those types of reviews with that in mind of like, what's the person's motivation in this? What are they what's going on with them today? <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm also wondering what this is doing to us as consumers, ultimately. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that you maybe go into the local hardware store and they sold, you know, some kitchen stuff, too. And you'd ask the guy there which one's good or something. And he'd <laughs> tell you. Uh, and and that was sort of boiled down to that. And, and maybe onto that, we could layer some consumer reports some wire cutter, some strategist, that kind of stuff. You know, but mm-hmm. now it is so easy to go down some kind of rabbit hole of online reviews and read 50 reviews. And, and at a certain point, I realized this is a $25 product. The, the chances... <laughs> the chances, Are you sure you don't work for us? Because that sounds really... I feel like I feel like I'm feeling a little attacked right now. What's right. going on? No, I just feel like the chances that my life is going to be wrecked if I wind up with a three-and-a-half-star product versus a four-and-a-half-star product and like I don't heed the caution that somebody in Davenport, Iowa was trying to to tell me on Amazon uh, about how how bad and depressing this thing is. I mean, I just feel like I'm turning into an obsessive compulsive nut as opposed to somebody who just needs to needs a new toaster. Well, I like to refer to the obsessive compulsive nuts as wire cutters. Um, <laughs> that is what I do all day. So just know that like you you're not alone in this type of thing, which is honestly the whole reason wire cutter was created. I've been there for a very long time. I'm going on, I think, 10 years now. So I was in the very early stages where it was like, the wild, you know, woolly comment section of the dark trenches of the internet and everyone was weeding through them trying to figure stuff out and like, you know, is is audio guy 29534 really working for this company or whatever, you know. Um, but, you know, I think that's what we're here for. You know, that's why we exist is to try to see those types of things. But, you know, I think people can feel pretty comfortable if, you know, skim the most recent stuff. I think that's one of the things that, um, is trouble, it kind of causes some trouble, is when you go into reviews, a lot of times companies do make changes. Um, in fact, I've had that happen with products that I've reviewed where I've found a flaw partway through, the company addresses it, makes an exchange, but the listing is still up on you know various sales places with that previous flaw that maybe has been fixed by a software update. And so you kind of want to check more recent reviews, see what's going on recently, look for patterns, you know, just generally like there's always going to be that one person, like you said, from Iowa, who's who might find that like their specific need, which is maybe completely valid that that particular frying pan doesn't work at a low altitude near cows. I don't know. (laughs) But that might not be your problem. Like you may not be near cows. And for you living in a small apartment in the middle of New York City or whatever, that might be a really great thing. Like that's the other thing you have to remember is what are you looking for? What's your need? And if you have that in mind, the giant frying pan that might be 
um, really fantastic for someone with an expensive kitchen and like, you know, all the fancy bells and whistles might be a huge burden for you if you have no cupboard space. So that's really, I think the key is look for that type of stuff. And then, you know, you can always ask us. I mean, that's one of the things is we're, yeah. we're really responsive. Like, you know, slide into our Twitter DMs, you know, I'm just saying. All <laughs> right. Well, that's <laughs> absolutely what I'm going to do from now on. You'll be hearing from me. <laughs> um, Lauren Dragon is a, a senior staff writer at Wirecutter, which is a terrific uh, thing if you haven't ever tried it before. Uh, the New York Times product recommendation service. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. All right. Now let's get ready for some really, really crazy reviews. There's no other way to say that. Uh, we're going to talk to somebody from a podcast where they dramatically read said crazy reviews. we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. All right, time to say some very quick thanks. Uh, the technical producer of today's show is a five-star general, Gina Amatruder. We're giving him five stars. And, of course, Lily Tyson gets five stars every day uh, as our senior producer and the producer of this particular episode. Now, um, I have been sort of smiling and chuckling all day long because I've spent a lot of the day listening to a podcast called Beach Too Sandy, Water Too Wet. This is a podcast where the two hosts do dramatic readings of, for the most part, kind of insane or slightly skewed uh, reviews, online reviews. So here's one of those two hosts. Uh, Zandi Schieffer is co-host of the podcast, Beach You Sandy, Water Too Wet. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So I just want to maybe begin by saying that some of the fun of the podcast, obviously, is you guys reading these reviews, but then you kind of pull them apart, right? And you talk about them, you analyze them, and you know, you often make fun of the people who are writing the reviews. And it's it's kind of amazing how much of their stuff they bring into one of these situations. I mean, if somebody's reviewing a particular Chipotle branch and it turns out that the one star is because the counter person flirted with her boyfriend, like, <laughs> how is that helpful to me? I'm not bringing her boyfriend to Chipotle. But, I mean, it just it seems like these reviews are often about something other than what they're allegedly about. Absolutely. All the time. People will project whatever's going on in their life uh, right onto their reviews. And I think that uh, shows a lot how these review sites, a lot of them are like social media in a way. And I know Camilla talked to that with the uh, different rating system that Yelp has. People are really trying to be funny or useful or cool. Uh, and so they will put in whatever they know or whatever experience they had, even if it's ridiculous and makes no sense. They'll throw it in there hoping to get some people to read it. The other thing that I love is the sort of mixture of stuff. I mean, for example, <laughs> uh, I think you guys were review reading some reviews of Trader Joe's and this woman writes, you know, this is a stupid place and it's too woke and I hate it and you, you should never go there. Also, they should have a scale in the produce department. And <laughs> you're thinking, wait a minute, why do you even care whether there's a scale in the produce department if in fact nobody should go there? Although that does sound like a, a reasonable suggestion. Yeah. Why Why not? And why not just say that? You know, that would be so helpful to all of us. I'd even give that a helpful rating if all they said was there's no scale in the produce department. That is a very legitimate review. But uh, we don't deal with legitimate reviews normally on our show. We like we like the ones where they throw in politics, where it's surprisingly not relevant because there aren't that many places where politics aren't relevant. And yet you'll see them in, yeah, like Chipotle reviews. And you're thinking, why? I just want a burrito. 
<laughs> so um, we asked you to do us a favor, which is so there are reviews of our there aren't many, but there are reviews of our shows uh, on the Apple podcast feature. Um, we've never asked people to write them. Uh, but since we have a superstar of review reading available <laughs> to us, uh, we asked you to read some of our negative ones. Uh, here's this is C1, Gene. Let's try a negative review called Big Disappointment. I love NPR and its shows, but what a big disappointment I just had when I called in to NPR for the fundraising drive. First, the NPR person had no idea who Colin McEnroe was and couldn't find his show. Their supervisor had no idea what I was talking about. Pledging $10 a month to $120 for a year to receive NPR earbuds, the Colin McEnroe show offered them. I wasted and my good mood. NPR never figured out Colin's show or the earbuds, today only. What a waste. I normally donate to WNYC. However, I prefer NPR. Okay, NPR doesn't want my donation. Shame on WNPR for not knowing of the Colin McEnroe show and gift. I called 8.55pm, Monday, October 7th. Well, that was beautiful. Um, and, and so, Zandy, there's so many things here that are, I think, hallmarks of some of the reviews on your show, including little phrases that seem to have been incompletely translated out of Slovenian. For example, <laughs> I wasted and my good mood, um, <laughs> which, which I think I, I can suss out the meaning of that. But if you're going to bother to write the thing, why wouldn't you uh, actually write it in some kind of discernible English? But the other thing is this review is another one of these reviews that's taking us some, on some kind of journey that's a set of emotional reactions the person is having. And when you really get right down to it, it's not a review of our show. It's a review of the person's experience trying to donate to the station based on our show. Exactly. Yeah. They, they, it's not about the content of whatever media they're consuming. They just want to uh, talk about some experience that they had and why to them it's a negative experience. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't realize the consequences of that. I mean, we, you talked to uh, Tyler about that, where restaurants will get these negative reviews, but people don't consider that, yeah, if I leave a one-star awful review, uh, just a rambling story, that can still have an effect. It brings a, that average rating down. And they see it as just an opportunity to vent. <laughs> so speaking of venting, let's hear the other one we had you record. This is uh, somebody who legitimately feels that, as Lauren Dragon would say, we suck. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, we were calling this one Thumbs Down C2. Colin McEnroe show Thumbs Down emoji. I listen to NPR all day. When 1 p.m. comes, I have to turn the dial. The parodies in the intro are bad, and the show is just plain bad. Topics are boring. I've tried many times to listen and give it a try, but always end up turning off and tuning out. Thumbs down emoji. I don't know. I don't find that upsetting somehow. <laughs> Maybe I've been doing my job too long, but these that doesn't I mean one of the things I think we all have to acknowledge is particularly with something like a radio show maybe a little less so with a burrito I don't know you can't please everybody people have specific mm -hmm. tastes stuff that they want going in what they're really saying is you didn't you didn't match up very well with what I like yeah people will um leave a review just saying it's bad, bad, bad without any real criticism. And you find the real criticism criticism comes when people are leaving three stars, four stars, where they're actually giving some, you know, hey, this product did this, but I didn't like it for this reason. In this case, it's just, oh, it's bad. I don't like it. Uh, we've had reviews of our show where someone will leave one star review saying that uh, they looked me up on Instagram and said that uh, I was a lot less attractive than they thought based on my voice. <laughs> and then they left a one-star review. That, like you said, it didn't make me mad. If anything, I laughed it off because I thought, okay, well, <laughs> any normal person's going to read that and think, oh, that has no basis on the quality of this podcast. So one thing that you now are, uh, you're a person who reads a lot of online reviews, some of them out loud, some of them to yourself. So obviously you're developing some set of sensibilities about them. And I get the sense uh, from Lily Tyson that you kind of find the middle ground reviews more interesting, stuff that's really amazing or stuff that really sucks. Uh, that tends to sort of represent an, ex an extreme point of view that's probably not going to be the average person's. 
Exactly. And I, I think that in the middle ground, you find those people who are willing to actually write a bit more because five star, they might say, oh, fantastic. Thanks for everything. Uh, one star, they might say, you suck. It was terrible. Uh, and then in three star, they might actually give a reason why uh, something wasn't how they pictured it. So they'll tell winding stories, especially on TripAdvisor. You'll see people will tell these stories and my jaw just drops sometimes at these stories. You'll get people that actually have terrible experiences and you think, wow, they only left three stars. This is <laughs> somehow <laughs> impressive that they uh, had this crazy story of when they're uh, zip lining and uh, <laughs> something went wrong and there was a terrible injury. They ended up in the hospital and they say, okay, but it was still three stars. Hmm. Zandi, I've only got about 60 seconds left, but the other part of this is listening to you and your co-host talk about people. You know, and sometimes mm. your take is, wow, people are so mean. But there's also a way in which, a kind of almost Whitman-esque way in which these are the voices of America, you know, and they, I don't know, they want to do the PT guy at their old age uh, living community or something. There's something a little bit, deli- I don't know, what, what's, what are your views of human nature based on all this? You now have 45 seconds. Uh, I I think that uh, it shows that a lot of people, yeah, are willing to be mean, but uh, also just want to share what's going on in their life. I mean, it can probably be very therapeutic for them to uh, share a story of their time getting lunch or who they shared their lunch with. Uh, So a lot of times it's really wholesome and it's really nice to see uh, just people going about their day and talking about uh, what made it special. All right. We have to stop there. I, I, I really am genuinely recommending this podcast. I mean, it will just cheer you up because of the way the hosts handle all this stuff. Uh, Zandi Schieffer is one of the hosts of the podcast, Beach to Sandy, Water to Wet. Thanks for doing this today. And let's go out with another review. Ah!